0: Welcome to the Vineyard Northridge Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by our senior pastor, Neil Haney. For more information about our church, visit our website at vineyardnorthridge.org or find us on social media at Vineyard Northridge. So Dennis and I decided that we were going to do a very unusual Advent kind of series. Uh, we're, we're calling this uh, of, uh, series Vital Distinctions. Doesn't that sound very Christmassy? You know, you just hear Santa Claus saying ho, ho, ho in the background, uh, and, and you can see the manger, right? When you hear Vital Distinctions, you know that. But, but really, here's the thing, guys. What I'm about to start this morning is all about why Jesus came, it's about the incarnation. The incarnation means when God became flesh, when God entered into the human race. And became a part of us, God Emmanuel, God with us. Okay, so, so God with us is, and, and what He accomplished here is what we're going to be talking about. And we're vital distinctions is dist, uh, distinguishing, basically, truth from not truth, uh, freedom and bondage, uh, God's work and our works. Uh, you know, what Jesus came to set us free from is what we're going to be talking about. And the truth. So, so if you remember in the Gospel of John, uh, it says that, that, you know, the Word was with God. The Word was God. And then he was, he was life. And then the life was the light of men. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, which is Jesus coming into, you know, Bethlehem as a baby. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And He says that He revealed who God is. When we look at Jesus, we see God. No one knew God before, really. No one really knew and understood God. Jesus has revealed the nature of God, the truth about God, who He is. And it says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the law and grace. Because... We've got to distinguish between the two. We've got to move away from one and towards the other and to the other and into the other if we're going to ever be able to live this Christian life. A few weeks back, I told a, a story about a guy named Joseph Cook. Uh, I actually got to know uh, Joseph Cook. Um, uh, just was able to spend some time with him before he died on the phone. Uh, I had read a book of his, and somehow I was able to look him up and and, uh, and we got to know each other the very summer before Deb and I got married. And uh, he died shortly after that. But what a precious man. But this man was, uh, he grew up in a Christian home. He he uh, went to Christian college. He went to seminary. And then he went to the mission field. I mean, he loved God. And he wanted to serve God. He wanted to please God. He wanted to do everything he could to, to love and please God. And... uh and yet, three years on the mission field and he was totally burnt out. He crawled home uh, to America. His wife had to go to work to support the family because he was not able to function. He was completely uh, a shell of a human. What happened to Joseph Cook? He loved God. He went to Christian schools and colleges and seminaries. He, he learned all the truth, you know, supposedly about Christianity. But yet, Joseph Cook was living under the law. He had a wrong view of God. He saw God as a demanding taskmaster. He saw God as the great traffic cop in in the sky, you know, writing tickets for every infraction. He saw God as, as the big Santa Claus who was watching and making his list and checking it twice and finding out who was naughty and nice. Guys, that's how we're raised. I mean, honestly, do you remember Santa Claus and the whole Santa Claus thing about being good, being a good boy and girl? I mean, there's a song written about it. I hate that song, by the way. Going to find out who's naughty and nice. He's making his list. When I would misbehave around Christmas time, my mom would often go to the, there was a phone in the living room that hung on the wall. She would go over to the phone and she would pick it up and she's like, I'm about to call Santa Claus and tell him what you did. And I'm like, no, please don't do that. I want toys, you know. And I would cry and apologize. And it worked pretty well. I mean, for one month out of the year, she really had me on the ropes, man. But we, we kind of learned this, 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 this system of if you're good, you're rewarded. If you're bad, you're punished. And, uh, you know, it's ingrained into us from an early age. But you know and, and, and it works pretty well i'd say you know rules are good and in business in school and in society we've got to have rules i mean if you you know if you break the law you know if you, if you're going seventy in a forty, you know you get a ticket you get a big ticket for thirty miles over you know if you if you shoot someone or steal something you're going to pay for that they're 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 in in this world you know if you if you uh are lazy at work, you're not going to get the promotion. If, if you are you know, a, a bad child and you misbehave at school, you're going to go to the principal's office and no telling what happens there. You know? uh, and that works fine, you know, more or less, in our society, in our, in our culture, but it doesn't translate very well at all to our relationship with God. And yet because we're wired that way, we're, it's ingrained in us from an early age we make the transfer from our parents and school and you know the police and everything to, to God bing <laughs> I have an idea um, so let me, let me just say this the, the law is a system a, a religious system where someone tries to make spiritual progress or gain God's approval and blessing based on what he or she does that's what the law that's what the law is the old covenant is the old covenant because the law was very limited in what it could do for us in fact it doesn't do for us what we thought it was supposed to it's really interesting do you know where the law came from think about it for a minute when adam and eve we're, we're told not to, to eat of the, of, of the tree. There were two trees, by the way, in the Garden of Eden. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which basically is the knowledge of right and wrong. Hey, there you go, right and wrong, the knowledge of right and wrong. Before they sinned, they didn't even need to know what that meant. They just lived out of a relationship with God, and they just did what came natural, which was Good. But when they decided to rebel against God and, and and they didn't trust him and they trusted the the evil one, the liar then 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 we had a problem then then they understood right and wrong, and they knew that if they did wrong, they were going to you know it wasn't going to be good if they if they did what was right, they were going to be rewarded for it and so you know this whole thing, this old religious system of right and wrong, good and bad, punishment and reward started took place there but the people of Israel just joined right in that. At Mount Sinai, they said, you know, Moses came down and said, hey, God wants to talk to us. You know, he's going to start this relationship and this is going to be great. And they said, no, you talk to him. We're scared of him. You go get us a bunch of rules and we'll keep the rules and then and we'll keep the rules and, and you, you have a relationship with God and everything will be cool. Do you think that's what God wanted? He said, okay, if you want rules, here they are. Good luck with that, because it doesn't work, guys. It doesn't work. The old covenant was this way. Break the law, and you're cursed, and you die. Keep the law, and you're blessed, and you have life to, to some extent. The problem is it never worked in a relationship to God. It just didn't work. And so God scrapped the old covenant for the new covenant. But let me tell you what the law did accomplish for us. Because the law is good, right? I mean, when it says, thou shalt not do this or that or the other thing, we really shouldn't do that stuff. We shouldn't kill people. We shouldn't steal from people. We shouldn't lie to each other. We shouldn't commit adultery. Those things, I mean, all that's true. But but does telling us not to do those things keep us from doing it? Actually, the opposite happens. Now, Jesus came and told us. He's like, okay, yeah, you haven't killed anybody and you may not be stealing from people and you may not be out and out lying to people. But let me tell you what this is really about. It's what's happening in your heart. So if you hate someone or you look at someone lustfully or whatever, you've already broken the law. You just have done it in your heart. You didn't do it physically. Physically. And so you might be able to keep it. You might be able to keep yourself from killing someone, but you can hate them a lot in your heart and, ki- and commit murder here because it's a heart matter. And so what the law did was it showed us right from wrong. It showed us that sin is really bad. Like before the law, we kind of knew that we were violating a conscience, but when the law came, it kind of pointed out the, the real stuff. It's like, Here's how bad sin really is. So, the law showed us how bad sin is. Number two, it showed us that we had no capacity to keep it. It only showed us that we were wrong. And it didn't reward us for being right. Because, first of all, we had a very difficult time with that. But it offered us no solution when we broke it. It just offered us no solution. It just said, You're bad. You broke the law, you're bad. But what it did for us, what it really did for us, is it showed us how much we need a redeemer, a savior. Do you understand? Adam and Eve needed a savior. The people of Israel needed a savior, and it wasn't Moses, by the way. The law came through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I want to share something with you in, uh, in the book of Galatians, which is all about not, not, not trying to be a Christian by what you do. You see, see, uh, the law is all about doing and not doing. Do, 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 don't do, don't do, don't do. If that doesn't help me. That, that doesn't help me because I can't measure up. That's the problem that, that, that uh, Joseph Cook was having. He couldn't be good enough. If he read one chapter of Scripture, he felt like he should have read two. If he prayed for 30 minutes, he felt like he should have prayed for an hour. If he sinned, it was just he couldn't face God. And then, and then the more he focused on trying to overcome that sin, the more he sinned because when you, when, what you focus on is what you end up with. If you focus on sin, you're going to sin, even if you're focused on fighting it. Uh, my seminary professor, David, David Seaman, says that he was a missionary in India, and, and uh, there were these guys that would peddle uh, these, these potions to cure things. And when they would sell these potions, they would say, now this works, this always works, unless you think about little red monkeys. So don't think about little red monkeys, and this will work for you. Well, you know what happened. The potion didn't work because they're like, oh, don't think of little red monkeys. Don't think of, oh, no, I thought of little red monkeys. It doesn't work. I wasted my money. It's what, you know, so he, he always said, what gets your attention gets you. So if you're focused on not sinning, guess what? It just, it, it, the, the law empowers sin. The power of sin is the law, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Now listen to, to this. Paul is trying to explain to the Galatians that were beginning to fall back under the influence of what he called the Judaizers. These were people that were trying to mix Christianity and Judaism and keep some of the laws and and trying to get the, the men in Galatia to, to go through the rite of circumcision because they felt like that was the only way that you could truly be a true person of God. And Paul has some very, very, very tough things to say to these people, talking about the Judaizers. But he says this, Before, this, before um, faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. The law was holding us prisoners. Now, I'm going to explain what that means in a moment. Until faith should be revealed. Faith is the way we take hold of what Christ has done for us. It's the way we take hold of grace and truth. That's that's how we take hold of it. So law was put in charge of us to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we no longer are under the supervision of the law. The law has nothing else to say to us. Now, let me explain this, and then we're gonna look look in Romans for a minute at this. But but here's the deal, guys. So in ancient Greece, the Greeks would often send their children off to boarding school. And what they would do is they would take their one of their servants that was educated and, and you know, one of their slaves that was really educated and, and really had. You know, they had proven themselves to be loyal to the family and, and and so forth, and they would say, Okay, want you to take this child, our our son, our daughter, our well, it's probably sons in that culture, want you to take our son and take take him to the school that might be a couple of days away. And and as you're taking him there, you know, uh, teach him, make sure that he behaves, make sure he doesn't get in trouble, and deliver him to the school. And that person was called a pedagogue. And what Paul says in this chapter, in this, I mean, in this passage is that Christ was the pedagogos or the pedagogue to take us to Christ. So, the so what the this person would do is he would take this child and he would lead him along the way. And as they were going, he would teach. You know, let's go over your ABCs again. Let's go over your multiplication tables again. You know, And by the way, don't do that and stop doing that and don't run, you know, run off and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, he would bring that child to the school and as soon as he handed the child off to the schoolmaster, his responsibility was over and that child was no longer responsible or even related to the pedagogue. Now he was under a new, a new master, under, under the jurisdiction of the school and the, and the pedagogue would leave and go back home. That's the law. The law showed us how much we needed a Savior. The law showed us right from wrong. The law was only able to bring us to a place where we knew we needed Christ. And once we're handed off to Jesus, the law has no more jurisdiction over us. Period. Now, let me prove that. (laughs) Okay, It's really fascinating what we find in in Romans uh, 6 and 7 regarding the law. Let me, let me just read this. <clears throat> um, in Romans 6, it says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. So, so here's, what, here's what happened. Here's what Jesus did. In the incarnation, He came, and He, he, he came, and He said in early, early in the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So what He did was, He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He as a perfect human, as the real human, as the last Adam, the second and last Adam, the first Adam brought us into the mess we're in, the, the last Adam came to redeem us from that. And so it says, as, as a result of one sin, all men sinned. But as the result of one act of righteousness, all men are made righteous. So, so Jesus undid the curse, undid the undid what... So, so it says... We died with, so he died for us. He paid the penalty for our sins. But he kept the law perfectly, not only for, for himself, but as us, as the last Adam. He was obedient from the time of his baptism to the time he said it is finished on the cross. He obeyed God perfectly and then died in our place and took us with him. In him, we all died. And in him, we are all resurrected. But it says this... In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive and God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to obey its evil desires. Don't, don't offer your, your body to sin, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought back from, the, from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are no longer under law, but under grace." You're not under law, but under grace. That really never made sense to me for a long long time. I didn't understand what does that even mean? You're you know, you're you're not a slave to sin because because you're no longer under law, but under grace. Well, here's the deal. He says, "Brothers, uh the law had authority over you only as long as you lived. He says, by law, a married woman was bound to her husband as long as he was alive. But when her husband died, she was released from the law of marriage. If she married another man while her husband was still living, she committed adultery. But if after her husband died, she was released from the law, so she's not an adulteress even though she marries another man. So, brothers, you also died to the law through Christ, the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to Christ who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the, by the sinful nature, the passions, the sinful passions aroused by the law, the sinful passions aroused by the law, the law arouses sinful passions, the power of sin is the law we at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to the law that once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Do you understand what's happened here? We have died to the law. Now we live by the Spirit. The new covenant in, in, in Jeremiah 31, 31, it says... I'm making a new covenant not with the house of Israel. Not like the old covenant I made with them when they sinned against me in the desert and broke my covenant and broke my heart. I'm making a new law. I mean, a new covenant with the house of Israel. I'm going to put my spirit within them. He's going to write my law on their hearts and on their minds. That's the new covenant, the spirit of Christ in us. Having written the new, the, 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 the law on our hearts and minds we we don't obey God because there's some kind of written code that says thou shalt not we obey him because we have the spirit of Christ in us and we're living under grace the problem with the law is it never worked in relation with God so God scrapped it but the law led us to Christ led us to grace led us to truth and here's what he led us to and let me just say this. Spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery is not what you might think it is. Spiritual adultery is not sin. Spiritual adultery is when we are married to Christ and we go back and have a relationship with our old husband. Does that make sense? When, see, see, what happens to us is that when we become Christians, we, we, we are sinners, we're just totally sinful. And then someone presents the gospel, or we read something, or the Holy Spirit comes to us and begins to show us another way, and we come into a relationship with Christ, and we're set free from sin, and we're set free from the law, and we experience His grace, and everything changes, and we're, we fall in love with Jesus and like, like I remember when I fell in love with Deb, like, like for months and months and months, I couldn't even see another woman. Like I couldn't even, like, like every other woman in the world just kind of faded into the, to, to a blur. And all I could see was her and her beauty. That in love thing lasts from six months to two years. And it's not unlike that for the Christian, the new Christian. We fall in love with Jesus and we feel like, why would I ever want to sin again? And we have this kind of honeymoon period. And I do believe there's some endorphins involved in that. And, and we, we fall in love with Jesus. But then just like when we fall out of love with, you know, I mean, uh, a counselor told me, uh, the counselor that counseled Deb, and I me mean, when we first got married, because, I mean, we were trying to work on a relationship. I mean, it was, we were both older when we got married. We had some struggles and stuff. And and he uh Steve Jude is the guy's name, and he told me during counseling he said, he's like, Neil, being in love only lasts anywhere from six months to two years. I've never known a couple that was in love. I mean, I'm talking about goo-goo-eyed, you know, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, you're just so beautiful and wonderful. He's like, I've never seen that last more than two years. In any marriage. And and with Jesus, we fall in love with Jesus, but then. You know, that, that those warm, fuzzy feelings only last for so long. And then one day we wake up and we're not feeling that. And suddenly we're faced with that, that old nemesis of a temptation. And we fall before it. We, we sin. And then we just start beating ourselves up. And we're like, oh, you know, I'm a failure. I'm, I, you know, maybe I'm not even saved. You know, we go through that stuff. And that's That's normal. But what we tend to do is is we experience God's grace and then as we begin to struggle with sin again and as we begin to try to please God, we, we end up back into this kind of part grace, part law kind of a deal and we're committing spiritual adultery if we start trying to please God by what we do and what we don't do. And we start trying to deal with sin in our own strength. Does that make sense? It's spiritual adultery. It's not the sin that's the problem. It's our trying to deal with it in our own strength and trying to keep laws. And, oh, I'm not going to, God, if you'll just forgive me, I'll never do this again. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read my Bible every day, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this. God's like, that's, that's not going to work, but you're welcome to try. You know what's what's interesting is it's it's when we come to the end of ourselves and we're just completely broken, like Joseph Joseph Cook, almost said Joseph Smith. That's another whole deal, but uh, he started the Mormons. But anyway, Joseph Cook, like that was the he when he finally came to the end of himself, in total brokenness. He was able to experience God's love. And grace, because let me give you a definition. I gave you the definition of, of, of law, which is trying to please God by you know, keeping a bunch of rules and stuff. Grace is unconditional acceptance, it's accepting unconditional acceptance, it's accepting unconditional love, it's accepting unconditional approval, it's exception- accepting an unconditional relationship with God, it's accepting unconditional intimacy with Him. That's grace, it's all unconditional. Amen. And it's, it's not that it didn't cost anything, it cost Jesus everything, but he gladly did it so that we could experience life. So remember I said there were two trees in the garden. The tree that got us in trouble was the tree of right of no, the knowledge of right and wrong, but there was another tree there, the tree of life. I believe the tree of life was Jesus somehow. Because life came here. Life came to us. Life gave itself to us and for us. Jesus says, I came that you might have life. John 10, 10. And you might have it to the full. In John 6, he says, if you want life, if you want it, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Like an apple, like the... the, the substance and the juice from the apple give sustenance. You have to eat me. When he went to the cross, he was the fruit. I really believe the cross was actually ended up being for us the tree of life. And Jesus was, you know, m- m- made that the tree of life for us because the cross is where we were justified, we were redeemed but the life was not in some piece of wood. It was in Jesus. Jesus has become our life. And when we eat of him, we have life. Does that make sense? I want to end with a story. uh, Hopefully it illustrates this well. A story from a book called True Face and ended up being changed to The Cure. Uh, I don't think either is still in print, but... uh, really good story that came. I think that the substance of, of both books was this one story. There's a, there's a fellow that represents us and he's walking down this path and he's on his Christian journey and so, and so he's walking along this path and, and everything's going fine and he's walking his Christian walk and suddenly he gets to this, this fork in the road and there's a sign and one direction points to pleasing God and the other direction points to love, uh, trusting God. And he's like, What do I do? Like, I sort of want to do both of these, but, but now I've got to make a choice. Pleasing God or trusting God? Like, is there another, is there a bypass? Like, I just want to keep walking. But no, at that point, he has to make a decision. Which way is he going to go? Is he going to go the way of pleasing God, or is he going to go the way of trusting God? And so he decides to go the way of pleasing God, because that sounds better. And so he, he's walking down this road, and suddenly this big, beautiful building comes into uh, to view, and it says across the building in big, bold letters, striving to be all that God wants me to be. He's like, oh, this is great. This is exactly where I need to be. Striving to be all that God, that just sounds so wonderful. I want stri- to spend my life just striving to be all that God wants me to be. That was, that's perfect. And so um, he gets to the door. And right above the door handle, it says self-effort. He's like, of course. God does his part. I do my part. You know, it, it, you know you've got, I mean, in this world, you've got to work for what's good. And so this is where I need to be. So he opens the door and walks in. And a woman walks up to him and she says, welcome to the room of good intentions. And she's like, and he's like, "Oh, this is great. This is where I've always wanted to be." He's like, I, "I've always wanted to please God." And he's like, "How's everybody doing?" And everybody's like, "Oh, we're good. We're great. We're doing fine, doing fine. We're all doing fine. Our families are fine. Everything's fine." And he kind of notices uh, suddenly that everyone's wearing a mask with a smile on it. And so he's like, "Oh, I love masquerade parties. This is great, you know." And uh, so she says, the lady, the greeter there, she says, "How are you doing?" He says, "Well, you know, I've been struggling with some things, and I'm, uh, you know, really one of the reasons I came here was because I'm kind of struggling. She's like, shh, and she reaches down behind this podium and pulls out a mask and hands it to him. And everyone in the room's like, you know. And so he takes the mask and he puts it on, and he says, as a matter of fact, I'm fine too. I'm just fine. Everything's fine. And so uh, he starts you know, kind of getting used to being in this room, and and uh, and there's there's a sign above like this banquet hall that says "Working on my sin to achieve intimate uh, intimate relationship with God." Working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. And he's like, "Yeah, of course. You know, that's that's really what I want to do. I want to work on my sin so that I can achieve this intimate relationship with God." That sounds right. And he and so he starts kind of. Mingling and living there, and uh, and you know, at first it's okay, but the more he he goes on, he he, he he realizes that he's sinning more, not less, and that that people like around him they got these masks with these smiles on, but when he's seen people take them off, and when they take them off, he can see the fatigue and the tiredness and the frustration and the disappointment in their faces. And so he gets more and more discouraged as he goes, and he doesn't feel like he's getting any closer to God. In fact, it feels just the opposite. And so finally, one day, he can't take it any longer, and he takes off his mask, and he throws it in a trash can, and he slips out the door, and he heads back down the trail. And he is just exhausted. He is just so tired. And he comes back to this fork in the road, and he looks up, and he sees the two signs again. And he's like, this pleasing God thing just didn't work. It just didn't, it just never, I never felt like I could do it. And he's like, the only other choice I have is trusting God. He's like, well, I have to go somewhere. So he heads down the road of trusting God. And as he comes to this building, it's not quite as ornate. It's not quite as, as pretty and perfect, but it's, it's a beautiful building. And it says above it, living out who God says I am. He's like, that's kind of fascinating. So he walks up to the door to open the door handle, and right above the door handle it says humility. Think about the contrast. Self-effort versus humility. And so he, he opens the door, and he walks in, and this woman walks up to him to greet him. And she says, how are you? Welcome, how are you? And he's like, ah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm, I'm good. Don't want to do this again. <laughs> I'm fine. And, and, and suddenly he looks around and people are, are kind of like, are you for real? And no one's wearing a mask. And there's all kinds of people there in all kinds of stages of life. And he says, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm going to have to be honest with you folks. I'm not fine. I'm really not very good at all. I'm struggling with a lot of things, especially with some sin issues. And they're like, yep, yep, sounds right. <laughs> and he looks in the back of the room, and there's, there's a sign above the banquet hall that says, Loving Jesus and letting him love you. And suddenly, he looks down, and there's Jesus smiling at him with his arms open. And he goes and he lets Jesus embrace him. Guys, that's where we need to be. Trusting God for unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, unconditional approval. Because it's not what you did, it's what he's done. And by the way, he doesn't want you living your life for him. If you do that, you've missed the whole point. He wants to live his life through you. And that can only happen as you let him love you and let him draw you close and let his Holy Spirit work on you, which I've talked about now two summers in a row about the the old clock and fixing the innards of the clock. He is all about, so he's already accepted you. He's already given you his unconditional love, approval, and acceptance. Now he just wants you to let him draw you close and love on you. Here's the secret to living the Christian life love Jesus. Trust Jesus because He's got you. That, that's really it, guys. Law says you do. Jesus says, love me. Law says you perform. Grace says, trust Him. <laughs> Trust God. Trust Jesus. He's got you. He's the one that's going to change you. You can't change yourself. He's the one that's going to to use you to do great things. As we surrender to his love, as we surrender to the truth, as we surrender our lives to grace, as we stop trying to please God in our own strength and self-sufficiency, and we say, Jesus, I can't, but you can. Would you please do it through me? amazing things begin to happen i want to read one more scripture as i close this morning it's the end of romans 4 the beginning of romans 5 paul says he has delivered he was i'm sorry he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification therefore since we have been justified through faith Not works. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We always stand in grace. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath on sin through him? For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And not only this, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You are reconciled to God. You are loved by God and it is unconditional, unchanging forever. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about our church, visit vineyardnorthridge.org or find us on social media at vineyardnorthridge.